So I haven't seen it yet, but Wakanda Forever is on my list and something we might see as a family over the Thanksgiving break. If you're completely mystified about what all the hype is about of Wakanda Forever, it's the sequel, the follow-up to the movie Black Panther, which came out a few years ago. Excellent Marvel movie featuring one of the first black lead characters in a Marvel movie. And tragically, that actor, Chadwick Boseman, uh, died between Black Panther and the sequel, Wakanda Forever. So it's sort of, you know, this wonderful emotional uh, release that's just, that's just happened. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. Now, it seems to me that half of the movies I see these days or half of what I watch on television or Netflix or whatever, it's a, se it's a sequel, it's a series. There's, it's always building. There's always another episode or another movie or another installment or something that continues the story. It's like, you know, the, the Hollywood ending or the fairy tale ending where everyone lives happily ever after and at the end everything's all buttoned up and neat and tidy with a bow on top and everything's done. It's like that's falling out of fashion. Uh, and Marvel's particularly good at this. In fact, they've trained their audiences. If you're a Marvel movie fan, you know you should wait till the end of the credits and they'll have that little bonus scene, like that 30 second or a minute bonus scene that'll kind of tune up or cue up the next, the next film that's coming. Well, even though that might be sort of like, you know, manipulative, we know what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you to show up again and uh, pay some more money. But I think there's also something very accurate and kind of beautiful about this because that's how life is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never get to the end of the day and think, well, that's all buttoned up and fixed and settled and squared away, and that's just, everything's good now. Whew. No, every day is just the continuation, the sequel from the day before, right? Every day just continues the action and what we were working on the day before. Rarely do we get, if ever, get to the point where we think everything is done and settled and there's, there's, no, more, there's no more work there. Isaiah is also like that. Isaiah is, is not just one book, it's three books, actually, all packed together, sort of like my Lord of the Rings trilogy, where I've got all three Lord of the Rings books in one volume, and if I added The Hobbit, then I'd have like the perfect set, but the book of Isaiah, his writings, is not just one book, it's actually three books put together. It's a sequel, and it builds on each other. Now, when we first tune in, when we first start into Isaiah, we find Isaiah in the heavenly court. He's there in heaven. He's, he's surprised to be there. And while he's there, the creator is not happy. The creator is raving and ranting and raving about how people are behaving or misbehaving and not living up to the covenant. And Isaiah is feeling pretty uncomfortable being there, the only human, the only representative of the very humanity that, he's, uh, that God is complaining about. It's sort of like Isaiah is a mid-level manager and of this massive corporation, and he finds himself teleported to the boardroom where the CEO is going on about how the, his employees are just messing up, they're not living up to their job description, they're, they're destroying the company, the whole thing is just going down the tubes, and the CEO has said, well, I'm just going to lay everybody off, I'm going to let this com com company burn to the ground and, and start over, and that will be it. And Isaiah, once again, is there thinking, okay, I'm uh, one of those employees, I'm one of those people, 
this is getting awkward. You know what? I'm in the wrong place. I'll just see myself to the door. And he tries to sneak out. This is all in chapter 6, by the way. Then a seraphim, one of the highest orders of angels, takes a coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips, and basically says, you're good now. And by the way, you're not going anywhere. Then at that moment, the creator says, whom shall I send? Who will I send as my spokesperson to deliver this message to all of Israel? And I can just see the seraphim sort of nudging Isaiah to say, uh, that's your cue. And Isaiah says, uh, here I am, send me, which you might recognize as the hymn, as the line of one of our favorite songs here at Virginia Highland Church, here I am, Lord. Oh my goodness, here it is now. Yeah, yeah, okay, well, it probably wasn't that sweet in my life. Zach Wright, ladies and gentlemen, and our, and our choir, they're wonderful. But, but I'm thinking when it actually happened, if it was, you know, sung in that way, who knows, maybe not, but it definitely wasn't that sweet and melodic. In fact, I think there was probably something like that record scratch sound when Isaiah found out the message that he was supposed to deliver, that he was going to tell the Israelites that they were all being laid off that the, the country is going to burn to the ground and they were going to be sent away into exile. And this pink slip goes on for 40 chapters. And somewhere in there, Isaiah says, uh, how long is this pink slip going to go on? This, you're, you've gone on quite a while. What, how much longer is this going to happen? And God comes back to him and says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate. And that's just the beginning. So what's going on? Why is Isaiah experiencing and communicating a God who is vindictive and wrathful? I mean, isn't this like why we don't enjoy reading the Old Testament because of passages like this? And here we are. What's happening? Well, it might help to know the backdrop, the context. It's always helpful to know the context of what's happening in the Bible, particularly when we bump up against something that is unsettling like this. It might help to know that on the backdrop of this text, Jerusalem has just been invaded by the Babylonians and burned to the ground and the temple desecrated, the king's sons executed before his eyes and all the people sent out into exile in Babylon where they were slave labor. That's the context for this story. It was a huge national tragedy. It was, you know, like 9-11 times 100. And the people were left to wonder, why is this happening? What is going on? Why would God allow this to happen to us? God affirmed that we were the people that God had blessed and that our God is the supreme God of the world. Why would a all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God allow this tragedy to happen? Well, Isaiah and other religious leaders had about three options to help their people understand why this tragedy had come about. 
The first option was to say, well, I guess there is no God after all. If a good God would allow this to happen, obviously that God probably doesn't really exist. We just must, maybe we just made all that up. That is the option that often occurs to us in our time when tragedy strikes. It's probably not something that would ever have occurred to the ancient Israelites for whom God was a given. The second option was to say, well, the gods of the Babylonians, their gods were stronger than our God. And our God just buckled under their more awesome power and strength. Well, that option was about as appealing as option number one and wasn't really something that they could adopt, which leaves us basically with one final option, option three, that God used the Babylonians as consequences for our failures to live up to the covenant. That was the best of three really bad options of how to understand this awful national tragedy and why God would allow it. So that's the first book of Isaiah, which might be entitled The Pink Slip or The Bad News. But then comes the sequel, which is the passage that Bahuma just read, which we might uh, entitle Return, Happy Days Are Here Again, Going Home to Rebuild the City. Now, how did Isaiah interpret this moment? What had just happened? What's the background here? Well, it turns out that there was a shift in the geopolitical landscape. There's a new king who allows the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their homes, to rebuild their city, to plant their vineyards, to raise their children in their homeland and uh, reconsecrate the temple. And Isaiah interpreted that as, oh, our penalty has been paid. Our time out has been satisfied and we are back in God's good graces. And thus Isaiah takes on a much happier tone with this passage. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity or disaster. The wolf and the lamb will lie together. There will be no hurting, no violence, no pain, no more suffering on my holy mountain, the mountain of Jerusalem, which is the exact opposite of where we started. This is the end of the trilogy where evil that once seemed to reign and, and dominate has been vanquished and the world is put right. Okay, so what does any of this ancient history have to do with us today? Well, we're also coming back from an experience of exile known as a pandemic. And although we're not being invaded by a foreign power, we have been under attack in recent years from domestic threats against democracy, against black and brown people, against the LGBTQ community, against voting rights, against women's rights, against honesty and decency and civility, all of those things have been under attack in recent years from domestic threats. And like Isaiah, we might, midst of all these challenges that we've weathered, ask ourselves, what did we do to deserve this? Why are we suffering? Is, it, is this consequences for something that we did? And while we shouldn't just totally take responsibility for all of it, isn't it true at least partly true, 
that the messes we're in today are in some way the result of our failures to be good stewards of our democracy, of our values, of our many forms of media, of our basic call as Christians and as Americans to honor and celebrate and protect the sacred worth of every person. You and I individually might not have done a lot of overt harm, but don't we all bear some responsibility for the mess that we're in, no matter how we vote? Isaiah's vision is big, big and bold and beautiful and unattainable, it seems. It's just completely pie in the sky, economic stability for everyone, safety for children, care for the elderly and the vulnerable, no more harm whatsoever, everyone living under their own vine and fig tree, living in peace and without fear, all people doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly. I can almost hear People both cheering Isaiah on like, yeah, that's amazing. Let's go for that. And others saying, hey, would you dial it back a bit? (laughs) You're setting us up for disappointment by setting our goals in such a lofty way. Big visions can make us skeptical. As much as they might inspire us, they might also make us worried. Are we asking too much? Are we just setting ourselves up for disappointment again? I often find myself reverting to something I label as reality, which is basically me tamping down hope that I might be disappointed, or that th- tamping down hope that things can actually improve and using that to stave off disappointment before the outcome is even settled. Oh, well, I don't want to get my expectations too high. Let's just keep it down at reality so that I'm not disappointed later which is basically me turning my back on all the possibilities that the Creator might have in mind. As a church, we are leaning into a new vision today, the next chapter, the next episode, which is based on previous episodes here of our church, based right on our mission. Our vision plan calls us to do justice by converting the personage, this house right next door, into uh, dignified, affordable housing for those who need it. It invites us to love mercy by growing in love and relationship with one another. It challenges us to walk humbly by finding creative ways to open our doors to welcome the community in a humble way that does not have uh, loaded with expectations about their continued relationship, if any, with the church. Now, compared to vanquishing evil and ending all violence, you know, such that the lion and the lamb are hanging out together, our aspirations seem fairly modest. But even so, I know there is some anxiety in the congregation about our vision plan, particularly when it comes to the fundraising aspect and the capital campaign. I mean, I have some anxiety about that as well. But I have to remind myself that if there wasn't just a little anxiety, if there wasn't anything there that didn't make me a little nervous or a little uncomfortable, maybe the vision isn't big and bold enough. If there's no element of, oh crap, in a leap of faith, it's probably not 
a leap of faith. And while a whole lot of thought and work and process and leadership and attention and time has gone into this vision plan, ultimately you are the ones who get to tell us if we believe, if we feel the spirit in this, if this is really God's invitation. And, and we, through our vote, get to say, yes, here we are. Send us into this vision, which is more than simply saying, yeah, I think this vision is a good thing. It means, yes, here I am. Send me. Help me be one of the people that makes this vision come alive. The whole Bible is nothing more than a series of sequels. And the good news of our faith is that the sequel, the last chapter, in fact, the end of the final episode, always ends in resurrection, in new life, and in rebirth despite all the odds, which is just, in fact, a new beginning again. The story always ends with resurrection. And so we know if we are not yet at resurrection, we have not yet reached the end. Amen? Ashe, namaste.